This season is sponsored by Gorillas, the sexy grocery delivery app revolutionizing online shopping. Fresh food delivered to your door in 10 minutes, catering to all your food loving needs. Sign me up. Operating in major cities in the UK and globally, Gorillas supports small businesses as well as local producers to bring your favorite brands to your door. And just to get your juices flowing, they are offering all listeners £10 off your first order when you spend £20. Download the Gorillas app and use the code SEXY10 at checkout. Hi, and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, food experts, chefs, and people who just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and their favorite tastes along the way. Today, I'm joined by one of the most fascinating people I have had the pleasure of meeting. Dan Saladino is a journalist and broadcaster and makes programs about food for the BBC. His show, The Food Programme, on BBC Radio 4 is an in-depth, episodic series that delves into everything and anything attributed to food, whether it be the story of the digestive biscuit, the secret life of chocolate, or how to eat on a desert island. He has just released his new book, Eating to Extinction, an explorative and very important book about the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. From Italian heritage, Dan's knowledge and constant interest in food and its inner meaning and workings is riveting to me. And so it's the greatest honour to have him join me today. Dan, welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. (laughs) Hi, Hannah. Really good to be with you. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, Yeah, I've been, um, uh, I guess it's the end of the the summer, so trying to uh, go to a few food festivals uh, and enjoying them and um, doing quite a bit of reading as well because uh, we're going to be making an edition of the food programme in which we're going to do a roundup of uh, this year's books Um, and uh, also making a a radio programme. Um, so I'm juggling all of these things, but one, one thing they have in common is it's all to do with food. Well, thank God you're here then. <laughs> and I'm lucky to have you because I only meet, only met you sort of uh, recently. We were both at the big festival. Uh, mm. you, we did a really lovely little talk together. And we were mainly sort of focusing on this wonderful book of yours, Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Now, we're going to get into it, into the nitty-grittiness of it in a bit. But one thing I'm fascinated by is how long did it take you to write this book? <laughs> well, <laughs> there, are two, there are two answers to that. So the, the one that I could give you is that uh, it, it involved three years of, of writing. So I was uh, lucky enough that um, uh, I could take some time off from the programme, uh, which I did back in 2018. And... Since then, weekends, evenings, uh, I've been writing away. Um, but the, I, I think the real answer is 10 years because wow. that's or possibly more because that, that's when I started to collect many of the stories that appear in the book. And um, thanks to my editor being strict, there are now, <laughs> there are now only 34 uh, stories in the book. There, there were more than, I think, around 60 to begin with from a choice of, of thousands, which we can get onto in a moment. Um, but yeah, I think 10 years of, of 
traveling, story collecting. Um, but I would, I would confess, first time I've admitted this, I would confess that um, it was only when I sat down to write the book in, in 2018 that I started to join the dots between these different stories that I, I really understood the bigger picture uh, in terms of what was going on because that title, Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them is about disappearing diversity. Mm. And the argument I'm making, it's about uh, homo you know, food becoming more homogenous around the world, that we're losing things that we didn't even really appreciate as being important until relatively recently. Um, and so it was when I, when I started to write and do a lot more thinking and research that the bigger story came to me. And, uh, but the starting point was story collecting and I just fell in love with these foods that I found in a list of endangered foods. And each one was a lens into history and culture and economics and evolution um, and most importantly, diversity, how different food was really around the world. I mean, and, and these foods took me into uh, less familiar places. So way beyond European cuisine or um, things that I was more familiar with and into parts of Africa um, that uh, I knew little about and Asia as well, um, in, indigenous uh, food of Aboriginal people in Australia. So I, I, I was on such a steep learning curve. And uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like I've learned so much more about food in writing. I've only managed to sort of do a fraction of the book <laughs> since I've received mm. it. And I, I do have to say, even if you're not particularly interested in food in the way that perhaps you and I are, mm. it's, as you said, it's all encompassing. It's not just the surface level of these are the foods that are going to go extinct if we're not careful. It's actually a bit of everything. And, and I yeah. feel like anyone could could read this. I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Mm. And I am going to get on to, I have chosen, you know, my four sort of like favorite um, chapters so far. I just want to take it back a little bit before we get started. You were born in Bristol. Mm. Um, yes. And I know that you told me that you were baptized in Palermo and it's Sicily, somewhere that I am desperate to go to. I want to know what life was like growing up. I want to know what you were eating, who was cooking, what was on the table when you were a child. Um, I know that you've mentioned that you spent a lot of your summers in Italy. So sort of paint the picture. Mm. Yeah, because I, I do think, uh, and it's probably the case with all of us, that without that childhood, I don't think the book would exist either. So it's all, uh, you know, <laughs> and this other theme in the in the book as well, everything is interconnected. and. Certainly the food of my childhood is, is really important. And it was unusual, I think. Um, so my father uh, came from a small village in southwest, southwestern Sicily called Ribera, which is in the province of Agrigento. People might be familiar with the idea that there are incredible Greek temples in Agrigento and there's the fishing port of Shaka nearby, uh, beautiful tiled streets amazing ice cream parlors, fresh fish in all the restaurants. Ribera was not a tourist um, attraction. Ribera was a really functional agricultural town. And so uh, my mum was English and uh, we, we, or is English, both, both my parents are alive. Um, and growing up in Bristol, I, I, I was, yeah, these parallel universes were of, of food, culture, language uh, were part of it. Um, so I, in Bristol, 
uh, my dad always worked with food. So he'd arrived and worked in bakeries. He'd worked in restaurants. Um, he, he worked in, with ice cream as well. Um, the only people we knew were tailors, hairdressers and or barbers and you know, other, other people involved in food as well. So I would spend my British um, childhood uh, or parts of the, the year uh, either at school or uh, stuck at the back of a restaurant where, where my dad was working, watching waiters at work, which was wonderful, and also just taking a look at, at what was happening in the kitchen and then obviously having this amazing access to all kinds of mostly Italian food or Britalian food, you know, you could call it, because yeah. um, this was the 70s <laughs> into the 80s, so there was a lot of compromise going on. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, also uh, at home, my 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 mum cooked, and but she was working as well. So it was a you know typical nineteen seventies British childhood of um, you know fish fingers and fish and chips and uh, all kinds of meat and and two veg um, with, with probably a, a bit more Italian food than than most other kids. But then the summer would come, and um, from a very young age, I would travel either on my own or with my brother with a with a name tag attached to me to be looked after by the air hostesses I remember and then that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would arrive and be picked up by these amazing loving relatives who I couldn't understand who were weeping and wailing and shouting and crying that I'd arrived and that you know I was part of the family and then we would be whisked off to Ribera and um, I, I mentioned this in the book that it was like um, that scene in The Wizard of Oz of starting in black and white, which unfa well, perhaps unfairly, I, you know, that's how I felt about, or retrospectively, that's how I feel about British food culture at that time. Mm -hmm. So it's like going from that black and white to that MGM Technicolor explosion of sound and colour and noise, particularly because, it, you know, in the kitchens, people were shouting and arguing and uh, there were foods that I didn't, couldn't recognise at the time. So I'd be eating octopus um, and, uh, you know, realised after that all the arguments were mostly about food, you know, where, where the best, best um, you know, caponata was or, you know, the, you know which, which, whose, whose uh, pasta was, was the best, etc. Um, and there also the smell of I, the one thing I really remember is the the food shops as well. So around almost it felt like every corner was a bakery. So and, and there would be these net curtains that were hanging down to keep the flies out that you'd walk through into this place where this smell of bread um would would just hit you and i, I, I was growing up in, in in 1970s britain i'd never been inside a bakery or, or anything like and there it was people would just pop out morning and afternoon and get fresh bread and then there were the shops that would sold um a lot of the you know, what we think of as street foods like the arancini, mm. um, so the rice balls. Uh, and also my my ultimate Sicilian street food, which I love and I, I try to cook at home sometimes, panelli. So this is the chickpea. Uh, you make a chickpea dough and then you, you make uh, these kind of thin, um, uh, yeah, this thin dough, fry, deep fry it. Ooh. And then you get this crispy, delicious fried um, yeah, uh, snack, and they they serve it as panni panelli, which is like the, this <laughs> fried chickpea f um, dough in soft buns, and it was ah oh, yeah, it was just fabulous. just absolutely <laughs> amazing. So yeah, it was these two worlds, and I think you know 
each made me appreciate the or notice the other more intensely i think so i pre i and i in sicily i got to walk in citrus groves and you know got everyone had a everyone had a day job but everyone also had a farm so they were all citrus they grew oranges they grew grapes almonds um but then they would go back to the day job of being a teacher or a traffic cop you know so uh it was an amazing insight and and probably and it didn't come to me until many many years later but that i think was a really really important and influential kind of yeah uh those are the building blocks of of my relationship with food i can only imagine i mean it's sort of like the tale of two cities in a way i mean mm. what when you were in bristol was your dad cooking or what your mum was no cooking? no no, no. my dad you know, because of the because of the jobs that my dad was doing uh yeah. and you know uh he was in spending the evenings in the restaurants mm. or you know um working late you know with with people in the ice cream world um so he he, he that, and that's partly why my italian is so bad because uh, you know my dad was working these antisocial hours in in hospitality effectively mm. with food and you know, and i have a brother as well so my mum was busy with a day job but also cooking as well um and so yeah mum's doing most of the cooking in Sicily, it was my nonna mostly mm-hmm. uh, who who looked after me. But then again, you know, everyone was invited. So yeah, big and social a, events. And aside from sort of like enjoying the eating aspect, which obviously we all do, at what point did you develop that deeper interest in food? I mean, were you in the kitchen cooking along with your mom and your nonna, or was it? Mm. Did that come a little bit later on? Um, I. Th- it came later on, but one thing I do um, think is important, and I mentioned the shouting that happened in, in Sicily around the table. People talked about food, and they told stories about food as well, which which was not the case um, back in Britain. I mean, I think, uh, and I came from a, a family, you know, in in the UK that loved food, um, and. You know, we were lucky enough. We we did occasionally go out to to restaurants of the friends of my dad, and you know, we would. I you know, fish and chips was a real treat, but not people. People didn't really tend to talk about food. Whereas in Sicily, you know, they they talked about food in terms of its history or which which part of the island it came from or who introduced it, the Greeks or the Arabs, or um, and also yeah, that that competition, that competitive nature of why this was the best and where it was made and who made it. So I think at that point, I'm st- even if some of it wasn't even true, <laughs> because they love to exaggerate, you know, yeah. I think, I, think um, I did start to understand that, f- that there were stories about food. And, and to me, you know, now, they are the best stories. Well, that's why I'm sitting here now hosting a podcast about food and, and the stories behind <laughs> it. I think it's incredibly important. We know you from uh, BBC's The Food Programme, Let's try and find a sort of summary here in terms of mm. how you got to the point where you found yourself on Radio 4. Was was broadcasting and journalism always something that you were interested in? Well, um, yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't part of my family background, obviously. Um, but uh, I, I was lucky that my mum listened to Radio 4 when I was growing up. And I, I think that was a, a, a really important another really important influence and I remember uh being 14 15 and there was a program um 
that was uh, called You'll Never Be 16 Again, which was a documentary format about the history of teenagers. <laughs> and I just loved the um, use of speech, music, archive. And to me, you know, the pictures were better than anything on, on television. So it was through pro listening to uh, radio as a, as a child um, that I understood that speech radio was something special, although that was never in my mind that that could be a, a career. It was only later that um, I'd, I'd gone to uh, university and I'd studied politics and I thought I was going to become a, an academic, the politics degree, which d d dealt with a lot of international relations, has actually been of great use when I was writing the book you know, in terms of understanding a little about how the world works. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but it was, it was when I was um, coming towards the end of university that uh, I started to really... I have this memory of being a student and thinking tomorrow I want to wake up and I want to hear the very first few seconds of Radio 4 and I'm going to listen all day until it finishes. I was I became really so obsessed with wanting to listen and the rituals around the schedule as well of which of the programs. And there was just something, I don't know, just the, the, the beauty of knowledge and um, people talking about books and ideas and history and all of those things. Um, and I, yeah, I've never seriously considered a career in television. I've always um, loved listening to radio since, since my you know, teenage years. And it was then I thought, somebody does make the, somebody makes these programmes. Um, and I got my first job as a local radio disc reporter after doing a degree in um, or a diploma in broadcast journalism at Cardiff University, became a local radio reporter for a few years, dipped him a tiny bit to, into television news, joined Radio 4, started to, and made some uh, made uh, uh, daily live programmes, but also an investigative series called Face the Facts, which took me to Africa. Um, you know, with, with presenter John Waite, we were banging on doors saying, we know, you, we know you're in there, Mr. Smith. You know, it's that kind of programme. Um, so uh, food wasn't on the agenda. And then here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I'll explain because it, I, 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 I knew the pro, I, I, was, a, I was a listener yeah. of the food programme. I knew the original presenter uh, by voice alone, Derek Cooper, who'd set up the programme in 1979, and then Sheila Dillon. Uh, and I listened to it, um, and I remember listening to it clearly in the 1990s, but it wasn't that's not the kind of radio I was interested in. I wanted to make you know other documents, or well, I thought I did. Um, and then after the investigative program, uh, an editor who perhaps knew me better than I know myself as a radio producer said, I think you should come and work on this program for a, for a few months. Um, well, 14 years later, you know, I'm, on, I'm working are. on the food program, <laughs> and from day one, from my very first program. And the, the more I started to think about the what stories could be told through food, I didn't need any other program. I, there, are, there is nothing I can think of that cannot be told through food you're as my, a story. You're my kind of guy, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because obviously, I mean, I've known about the program for years and, and I have listened to it intermittently over that time. And when you were when you sent me uh, some of uh, information about yourself, you sent me the episode that has your dad in it. Mm. Little did Bobo. you know that <laughs> you had sent me the pizza episode. 
Now, one thing you probably don't know about me is that I am the biggest pizza fan in the world. <laughs> so when you sent it to me, I thought I started laughing. I thought mm. he's obviously my spirit <laughs> animal because he, he sent me the right one. Because, um, you know, in those days, I'm, I'm assuming when you grew up, pizza was still quite exotic. Mm. You know, we it, look at it, it now was. as yeah. just, you know, at the, at the edge of our fingertips, we can have one mm. from any high street. But... Back in sort of the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, it was, it wasn't what it is today. No. And uh, which is why in that program, I, I argue with my dad. We, we disagree about what a great pizza is. And so there he was um, having to work really hard in restaurants. Uh, as you say, it, was, it wasn't such a familiar food as it is today. And so he was trying to please the audience, the, the customers coming into the restaurant. So these were the pizzas he, he was making were so heavy loaded. I mean, they were, you know, the, the ingredients were so thick and, and abundant. Uh, you kind of, you know, you couldn't really appreciate, the, you know, the pizza base. And, you know, uh, and um, that, that has stayed with him in terms of what a good pizza is. And for me, less is more. You know, and obviously if you go to, to Naples, even less is more, you know, the, the, the very best, very best pizzas are the most simple pizzas. So in, in a way that really, again, it's that transition from, you know, 1970s, 80s. And here we are today, as you say, with possibly, possibly some of the best pizzas in the world being mm -hmm. made. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite pizza? Oh, um, yeah, that that's that's uh, well, I think it probably does go back to. <laughs> Um, it does go back to my Sicilian childhood um, of, of the of the pizza they call the like the four seasons, oh, you know. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you know, lots of different herbs and. And um, I know that you, you do touch on this in the episode, but do you do you think that pineapple should be on pizza? I think there are too many other great ingredients that belong on pizzas. For pineapple to be a serious contender that was a very, that's that my was a very, that's that was my a, diplomatic I was answer just about to say that was a very diplomatic answer and i yeah. would i wouldn't have been as diplomatic because i think it is an absolute travesty that people would put pineapple on their pizza but anyway <laughs> i probably lost a few fans so i just really want to get onto this book mm. um this concept of eating to extinction now what i find so captivating about it is throughout well I, I don't is it maybe it's a bit too generalized to say throughout history but definitely from the amount of time that I've been on this planet I have been told that there are animals that are endangered there are animals that have be become extinct in my very short lifetime but we never talk about the food it's not sort of at the tip of our tongue when we think about extinction or rarity mm. so let's get on to sort of the idea of endangered foods and it's yeah. not just about losing a type of food is it no and uh, and I, I i can perhaps help by unpicking the title a bit so eating to extinction uh, i think it has two two meanings for me one is that um as as we are all increasingly aware our our consumption habits uh in many different ways but particularly in in terms of food well, our consumption and our production habits are having a huge detrimental impact on the planet. So if we carry on the way we are, our species could potentially become extinct because of the way we eat. The second meaning of eating to extinction 
is the fact that in a relatively short space of time that even though we have evolved with enormous diversity uh, around the world as as homo sapiens um, in a relatively short space of time and particularly in the last 50 60 years we have focused in uh, very successfully on a small number of crops food plants and an increasingly small number of animal species as well, as well farm animals and and so what we have done is that we've narrowed the range of what uh, we produce and consume at the expense of thousands and thousands of unique locally adapted um, plants and animals that, that would form the human diet um, and and I, I guess the, 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 the key word in the book is its diversity and that could be biodiversity so when we do plant those big crops what what are we displacing in terms of deforestation um, but also the extinction um, of or the potential extinction of what has gone before because it's being replaced by these super productive um, modern crops uh, and that success has spread around the world it was introduced mostly after the second world war um, the rationale being that there was hunger potentially there was going to be more and more you know famines and um, and we needed to create more calories and so we had the green revolution for example i mean it goes back much further to the industrial period but for the purposes of this conversation you know the green revolution was a big moment in the post-war period of science and technology helping us con take control over nature and that we could displace diversity with something that of our choosing that could produce a huge amount of food and it's only in recent years that we've seen the, the price being paid because of that success so that's why I could have chosen from one of from from you know, 34 different stories um, and there were many thousands of, of, of endangered foods that I could have selected what I've tried to do is to choose a selection that takes you around the world but also through different types of food so from wild to cereals to vegetables fruit meat fish so on um, and it for me it is as you say it's that deep history um, that goes back tens of thousands of years but in the case of one part of the book you know i introduced the idea that the story starts billions of years ago because of you know the arrival of life on this planet and the fact that in terms of evolution you know diversity was always there and the one species comes along and says no thank you we are going to do it our way and that was us and we produced you know huge amounts of calories and uh, we're now having to ask questions so this is why i say why we need to save them because we are now learning we need we need diversity touching on this diversity conversation um there is a very key point that you make at the beginning of the book which you and i also spoke about when we met each other uh during the summer which is some you you, you state some facts which i'm going to read out because i found them quite shocking um in terms of seeds, seeds which are in so many foods that we all consume, they are in control of four corporations around the world. Half of the world's cheeses are produced with bacteria and enzymes manufactured by one single company. Global trade of bananas is dominated by one variety, the Cavendish. 
despite there being 1,500 or so varieties. Now, can you sort of unpick some of those facts? Because I found mm. that really quite shocking. And perhaps yeah. that was my naivety. Um, mm. I, I don't know. Oh, well, I, I, no, it's, it's not your naivety. I, I just don't think we know what, what goes on behind our food system or within the food system. I think, you know, there are so many issues we're having to think about when it comes to health or welfare. This is, this is behind the scenes, effectively. So just to take those, those um, different um, uh, stories you've just mentioned. So seeds. Uh, now, yeah, uh, four corporations control just over uh, the majority of, of the world's seeds in terms of development and the trade in those seeds. And again, that, that is a, uh, a process of consolidation that happened mostly since the 1970s where the emergence of uh, large chemical companies that used to s basically specialize in just selling agricultural products chemicals started to invest in seed companies because the two they found could be sold together um, and and decade after decade they bought up smaller and smaller seed companies so now if you look at the you know the, the business of global seed um, production and trade, four companies uh, control the majority, not all, but the majority of the world seeds. Um, the other one that you mentioned in terms of the um, uh, cheese and the, um, the starter cultures and the enzymes that may make cheese production uh, possible. It's a complicated story, um, but, but in brief, Again, this is this is about an extremely specialist, specialized process um, to produce um, those products that uh, cheesemakers around the world now need, because we've moved away from the idea of, um, you know, being in environment in, in an environment where you have grass or you know forage for animals, uh, distinct you know, unique breeds to that location and you would preserve the milk to get through the winter. And so therefore, once upon a time, you know, there would be, you know, as, as many different cheeses as there were farmers, dairy, dairy farmers. Um, and what, what happened, you know, in, in terms of industrialization is that that then became, milk became a commodity and uh, pasteurization was, was um, uh, uh, introduced because liquid milk became dangerous because of urbanization and milk was moving around and it wasn't being looked after or it was being produced in unhealthy environments. And so we, you know, science came along and changed the way we make cheese and cheesemakers make cheese. Uh, but for that to happen, you needed you know, laboratory conditions to produce consistent starter cultures. And again, this one company is, is you know is, is is very very good at what it does um and there's a there's another part of that story in the book because they also travel around the world buying up um bacterial you know collections of starter cultures so they are also saving diversity you could argue before these these unique microbes disappear and then finally the you know the cavendish is a really interesting one because um you know, the fact that we can all eat bananas that travel halfway around the world and it's still one of the cheapest foods you can buy in the supermarket is, a, to me, mind-blowing. And it's only possible because they are grown in vast monocultures and they are a highly specialised fruit. Again, you know, it's this specialisation takes place. Um, but the, the risk is when you create monocultures, a disease can arrive in that environment of 
you know, in the case of bananas, cloned plants and can spread from one plant to the other. So um, yeah, we, we do have a lot of banana diversity, but for trade, we focus on the Cavendish and now that is in trouble because of TR4 or Panama disease is spreading around the world, attacking monocultures of the, of the Cavendish. And these other, just to quickly touch, let's just use the bananas as an example. So there's, you know, over, there's thousands of varieties mm. of, of bananas. Are the other varieties edible? Can we still eat them? Are oh, they... absolutely. So, yeah. so let's say, God forbid, the Cavendish does become extinct. Mm. There will be other varieties that we would be able to eat or would they just not be, be being grown to such an extent as the mm. Cavendish? A good question. And, and that, that, in a sense, is uh, being decided right now because it, this has happened before. The, the, the predecessor... Uh, in terms of the globally traded banana was the uh, the Big Mike, the Gros Michel, um, which succumbed to disease in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and it dwindled until um, the Cavendish was introduced as the replacement um, global banana. Um, and so it's just history repeating itself. Now, we, nobody's yet found the uh, next banana the replacement for the Cavendish. So Gross Michel Cavendish, question mark. However, a, a lot of people who've been watching this story unfold and seeing what has t taken place in the last century or so are saying, we need to, to actually bring back diversity. It doesn't make sense for the world to grow all of these bananas. Um, and there is a huge amount of diversity. But one uh, possibility is that because technology has moved on, science has moved on, we could end up with uh, genetically engineered Cavendish banana uh, or uh, conventional, conventionally bred Cavendish banana because there is a guy in the Netherlands, um, a young researcher who is doing, um, it's, it's almost like a, a, a form of breeding in which he's taking the wild ancestors of the Cavendish and breeding them into the modern Cavendish because the wild banana co-evolved with the, the fungus. Wow. Yeah. And so what he's trying to do is to get the, the resistance in the wild, put it into the modern Cavendish and then we can we can keep with we can keep with the Cavendish. Everyone agrees, though, that that we need to re-diversify. We need to bring back diversification and we need to really question the idea of monocultures of bananas so vast. You know, you could fly over them in an airplane and, mm. you know, have to look down for, you know, for for minutes and minutes and minutes. Yeah. Fascinating. So I've chosen my sort of like four chapters that I sort of spent some time reading about. And again, as I said, every chapter is so thoroughly interesting that it's like yeah. I, I as we could sit here for hours. Thank you. So yeah. I'm going to sort of go. I'm going to sort of give the floor to you, but I'm going to tell you what I'm interested in. So Hadza Honey, which mm. you spent time in East Africa. Yeah, in Tanzania, in near Tanzania. Lake Yassi. Yeah, with, with some of the last remaining hunter-gatherers who are, uh, again, they are not as if they are uh, our, our ancestors living today. They are thoroughly modern humans uh, who, are, who have chosen or choosing to live that lifestyle. Um, and the food in question, the, the wild honey, um, is located with the use of a bird. Um, the honey guide, uh, otherwise known as indicator indicator. And so what will happen is that the Hadza will 
go out um, and walking through the savannah with these baobab trees, huge trees, very hard to um, to to, to um, climb. They use sticks to climb up the trees. But if you were just to go out and think, well, I'm going to find myself a, a bee's nest and get some honey, it would take you a, a long time. So what the what what has happened is that, and we don't know exactly how this has happened, but the Hadza are able to make repetitive sounds, and in in their case, it's a whistle. In other parts of Africa, it could be a, a kind of a certain type of uh, song or form of of noises that are made. This attracts the honey guide bird. Now, the honey guide bird wants the bees' nests as well. It 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 wants to. Eat, uh, eat the, the the wax but it's high risk for the bird because you know it'd be easily be stung to death so this is a, a somehow uh, evolved over time is this mutual uh, this collaboration between human and bird the bird once it knows the hadza is there whistling will then lead the hadza to a tree where there is honey and then the deal is that the hadza will go up smoke out the the bees um, and then get the, uh, the honey and then leave something behind for the, the honey guide bird. Um, the most amazing part of this story is that the honey guide, like the cuckoo, is it's, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's abandoned as a chick in the nest and then will get rid of the competition. So it's not as if it's taught how to do this by its parent. Somehow it learns this and maybe it does that, some scientists think, by observation, as they had to do themselves. Um, and for me, the reason why it, this is chapter one in the book, and for me, it goes to the essence of human ingenuity in food. So how how we manage to find ways of feeding ourselves that are just completely astounding, really, when you stop and think about it. You know, a human having a conversation with a bird to try and find some food. But also, um, you know, there are questions about our evolution. How important was honey in human evolution? Meat gets all the celebrity status in terms of our transition to, to being humans but that's because the the equipment the tools are there so the stone axes that kind of thing with honey there's there's less evidence that archaeologists can find so but it could be that um that honey is the is is one of the reasons why we are who we are what we are when when i watched this happening and the hadza whistled climbed up a tree drove pegs into the trunk of the baobab which has got a soft soft um, trunk climbed up threw down the honey in big handfuls and then the hadza all stood around you know with their hands and just eating on the around the tree and there were um bee larvae in the in the honey you know there were um you know there were the bees wriggling around the crunching in your mouth as you ate and in terms of a com combination of energy and um protein uh, and this was just such a powerful food. And it's the Hadza's number one favourite food when they've been asked by anthropologists as well. Um, but uh, the sad thing is that when I was there, I also went into a hut that had been erected within reach of the, the Hadza. And inside were these uh, cans of soft fizzy drinks that had, you know, that had come in from the West that were being sold to them. And it's almost as if, well, if I can just buy sweetness this way, why would I, you know want to climb up a tree and um and so for me it's about endangered there's an endangered landscape in that that there has been deforestation but also mostly for me that story is one of lost or disappearing knowledge 
and skills that have taken tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years to, uh, to arrive at that could be lost in our lifetimes. What did it taste like? Well, again, it's a, it's a, the texture is completely unfamiliar, you know, because of the crunching mm. and the, the wriggling going on in your mouth as you eat. Um, it was, uh, oh yeah, I'm not, I, I wouldn't kind of overplay and say it was, it was like no other honey I've tasted. It was, it was delicious. And there were certainly um, flavors, uh, you know, really floral flavors in there. Um, the one that really did stand out, there were, there were these tiny little bees nests, like, and be, these were bees, stingless bees, like gnats within trunks. And so this is a different kind of operation. And when the hats are hacked into these little nests inside trees, because you just need to look at a tiny little straw coming out of the tree where the bees come and go. Now that tasted of just, it was almost sharp, citric, wow. wonderful, really distinctive, unusual um, flavour of honey in that in that case. One thing I also got from it, correct me if I'm wrong, um, how much they're actually getting. I mean, the work they're going to, to have to, to sort of work with this honey guide mm. um, indicator, indicator bird to then climb up the tree. They're not getting loads of honey out of this, are they? I mean, well, no, they, is it, it, is is it quite, quite a bit? I think it's quite a, it's quite, well, I, I think in terms of energy in, energy out, it's 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 to, it's a really um, advantageous food for the Hadza. Uh, and again, in terms of the concentration of energy in that in that food, and and because of the, I mean, it, this would be completely different if the bird wasn't there. Because yes. I think the amount of energy you would need to expend to actually find mm. the nests and then climb up maybe five trees to discover they were empty or whatever. I, yeah. So I think. Actually, it, it makes it's, it makes a lot of sense because there's a big bang for the buck, really, in terms of the um, climbing up the tree and, and getting you know, quite a bit of quite a large amount of honey down. Um, and it's seasonal, though. And uh, but when the when the um, it's, it, it's all water dependent. So when the when it's been raining and there's water holes and 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 lakes and then they can target the the animals through hunting because that you know that they're they're in um, they know where that they're most likely to find them when they're not there then that's when the honey really comes into its own um so it's a good fallback food um during uh you know periods of of the year i hope that the bird never becomes endangered <laughs> no um and again, I mean, there is deforestation, but I, I think that's the really interesting thing, that it yeah. isn't about an endangered, extinct animal. It's about the, our yeah. ability as humans to communicate with that bird. Absolutely. It sort of it, it encapsulates sort of everything. And that's, that's why I quite loved that story. Mm. The other one that I was really quite interested in, simply because we, well, unless you're, I don't know, celiac or whatever else, but wheat is in, you know, so much that we consume. But it's this particular kind, which is the, forgive my pronunciation, the Kavalja wheat yep, found in Turkey. Mm. Mm. So talk to me about that. Well, in the book, I wanted to try and use stories that would take me through human history. And um, which is why, you know, to go from Hadza, which is what happens in there, but you go from Hadza and wild food and you go into cereals. So the arrival of the, the first farmers... 10, 12,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. 
um, which is in southeastern Turkey and then into Iran, Israel, that 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 part of the world. And so I wanted a story that would take me in to that the beginnings of humans as uh, agriculturalists. And so I wanted a food that could also take me to as close as I could get to the Fertile Crescent. But uh, I, I ended up just going a bit further north. But it was still a really important part of that story because Kavulja is an emma type of wheat, uh, which means it's a hulled wheat. And it was one of the first of two main wheats that humans domesticated from the grasses that were growing in the Fertile Crescent 10, 12,000 years ago. Um, and so... Uh, um, emma wheat and einkorn are both um, uh, could be found in, in the Fertile Crescent. And if you plot the rise of the first cities and um, the, the earliest civilizations, it's a story of emma and, and emma wheat. Um, and so um, if you look to the wheat that was being eaten by the people of ancient Egypt who were building the pyramids, that was an Emma wheat culture. If you think about the people who erected Stonehenge in in what is now Britain, that was an Emma wheat culture. It was only post-Roman Empire that bread wheat really starts to spread around the world. And so that that was a story I, I loved. And I wanted to tell that history as well. But Kavaljar uh, is now only grown in a, in a, in a, in a tiny village just south of a, of a, of a town called Kars. Um, just on the uh, in, in eastern Anatolia, so far eastern Turkey. And um, it's quite a cold, damp, mountainous area. Kavaljar wheat is one of the few crops that really can do well there, um, particularly if you don't have access to fertilizers or chemicals. And so um, uh, it, it's, it kept people alive in that part of the world for thousands and thousands of years. But because of what happened in 20th century with the Green Revolution and the idea that, you know, we could have these more productive, high yielding wheats, Kavaljar became endangered and has and almost went extinct. It's been kept alive by a few um, uh, farmers. This is actually I just realised on oh, my desk. This is, I'm just sure I know people can't can't see no, this. No, this, this is recorded, Dan. Ah, We've got the video okay. going as well. OK, so this is <laughs> this is Kavaljar wheat. And um, so that oh, that wow. is uh that's an well, example of that. Of in that fact, I have wheat. got to see this in person mm. because you did bring it when I met you. Mm. <laughs> it is yeah. just—it's so fascinating. I think the thing that I get from all of these stories is, and probably something that everyone is saying to themselves after the past year that we've all had to go through, mm. is that we are not invincible, and nor is anything around us. Um, we sort of eat and we we live our lives thinking that everything's just going to be there forever. Um, yeah. and, and it's not. So I, I do find that very fascinating. Well, actually, and, and that's a that's a really important point, because the, um, the you know, why should we care about Kavaljar? You know, it's, it's a type of wheat grown in an obscure village in eastern Turkey. Uh, well, actually, what we are now battling with, and I mentioned this, this is the case with um uh, with the Cavendish banana, but it's also the case with with so many of our the, the crops that we depend on. There are wheat diseases that are becoming really problematic, and crop breeders are having to to work ever harder to to come up with new varieties because of the spread of diseases. Cavaljar um, certainly has a great deal of resistance to the climatic conditions of that part of uh, of Turkey, but inside Svalbard, the you know the seed vault in the Arctic Circle, are more than two hundred 
thousand samples of wheat and we don't know what we are losing when a farmer decides not to carry on growing mm. that wheat because there could be disease resistance um, there could be tolerance to drought you know there could be you know incredible properties when it when it comes to nutrition we don't know but we know that we are living in a risky rapidly changing world and so we need to keep our options open and therefore we need diversity this is the key word that we're just taking from this. The chapter that um, I think is something that we all, if we're all into our food and, and read the news, um, know most about is wild Atlantic salmon. We know that that is endangered. Um, mm. That was a very fascinating uh, chapter to read because, gosh, how incredible salmon are. What mm. talented creatures they are. <laughs> The life cycle is, Phenomenal. again, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing uh, thing to think about that this idea that, um, that they can spend the first few years of their life, first couple of years of their lives in a stream, um, if they can survive to get bigger, to then change, so physically transform themselves to become seagoing um, creatures who will then swim for thousands of miles to feeding grounds in the North Atlantic and then return to the exact same place of their birth. We still don't really understand how, how, how they do that. Um, but yeah, frightening story because in, in the last century we have seen a dramatic decline in terms of the numbers that are leaving the rivers and then returning. Um, and it, certainly in some parts of the North Atlantic, it does look as if that they will become extinct. It's, it's yeah. So choose and, your salmon wisely if you want yeah, to eat but, salmon. <laughs> but also it, it does show how complex this whole story is because obviously because of it being a river fish and then a, an ocean going fish, it tells us, or it's almost like the canary in the mine or the salmon in the, the sea and the river, you know, um, telling us that there's something seriously going wrong on land and on sea mm. and it's not as if you can just point the finger and say this is the one reason why the salmon have fallen into to decline because um, you know we built dams we polluted rivers um, you know we have uh, created um, uh, uh, an environment and uh, we are experiencing climate change that's changing um, the food available to the fish in, in, in the sea as well, or, or introducing competition to the, to the, to the salmon as well. Um, and obviously, clearly, many people also point to the impact of um, uh, aquaculture as well. And, you know, again, more research is needed to, to fully understand what's going on um, in, the, in the relationship between the wild and the farmed. Most importantly, I think you need to we overfished the salmon. You know, we, we, we took them out of the rivers and we, we took them out of the, the sea in huge numbers. Um, and, you know, as our technological abilities increased, we were able to, you know, locate them and take them out of the, um, of, of the sea in, in, by the thousands of tons. So, uh, yeah. So it, in a way, the, the salmon is a really powerful Story is like an indicator species that nothing to fix to fix the world. Uh, the the author Mark Kalansky says we really need to save the salmon because once we've saved the salmon, it shows that we have resolved many of the problems yeah, that we've created. Absolutely, I think um, 
it's not that it's you don't write to sort of scaremonger you write to um i think educate and you know someone like me who thinks i know a lot about food i learned just within four chapters um that by doing little things so let's use you know wild atlantic salmon um there is a possibility that we could reverse this somewhat yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't, in the book, I didn't, I, I didn't, firstly, I didn't want to um, say that, that, you know, accuse. No. Or to be too simplistic, actually, in, in saying it's the fault of X, Y, or Z. I mean, it's just far too complex mm. and the history is far too long. Um, there are clearly things that, that we and, you know, uh, other uh, entities in the food system are doing that need to stop or change. But I think it's far too complex to say that it's it's one it's it's one uh, cause no it's not but i i also do want to show that there are reasons for optimism the the book is also full of stories of people out there who are working hard to save these foods um now it could be the fact that they are just seed saving um or it could be that they are recording um diversity so we actually even uh, we understand what what's what's there to begin with um, but I do think um, the conversation you and I, you and I are having now, we probably wouldn't be having ten years ago. This this is a subject that that many people have dedicated their lives to over, you know, throughout the twentieth century into the twenty first. But I think, in terms of mainstream consciousness, it's only recently that we've been thinking about biodiversity or diversity or um, food food security in the way that we're talking about it now and resilience. Um, and adaptation um, and genetic resources uh, but at the same time I also in the book wanted to make it clear that you know this isn't just about saying we need to save these genetic traits because uh, of, of a crop disease it's, this is also a human story it's all, also about culture and identity and if the world ends up eating all the same food then what does it mean to be human mm. surely there's something that has been lost that's fundamental to our species and actually, that seamlessly brings me on to, um, unfortunately, the final um, chapter that I wanted to discuss, because actually what I got from this particular chapter is, although uh, something may be appearing to be endangered, there is also um, the enjoyment that this particular person gets from making what um, I've only just again discovered this summer since meeting you, something called perry so perry is a bit like a cider but it's made with perry pears mm -hmm. um there are very few of these uh pears being grown but there is a wonderful uh area that i believe is still secret somewhere <laughs> in england um and you spent some time with a lovely gentleman um, who is also, what is he, the road manager or the sound mixer for the Proclaimers? For the Proclaimers, yeah, Tom, Tom Oliver, yeah, who, who grew up in a farming family and then became a music producer in London and then, um, and then uh, uh, came back to the farm and uh, tells the story of uh, sitting down with a, this eccentric Oxford professor who used to make his own cider and came up, used to come up from his cellar, which was underwater because of, uh, you know, used to flood all the time. And Tom tasting these, these drinks and saying that that's what I want to make. That's what I want to spend my life doing. 
And so uh, he became a, a cider maker, but also uh, more unusually became a perry maker. And perry is interesting because it has such a, a deep history in that it was the champagne of England and grew predominantly in the three counties um, of Herefordshire, Worcester and, and, and Gloucestershire. Um, and that I think we think of um, food landscapes as being somewhere else. So vineyards in France, for example, or like the, you know, the um, uh, olive trees of Spain or, or, or Italy or elsewhere around the Mediterranean. These peri trees are giants. I mean, they could be 60 feet tall, 60 feet wide. They take hundreds of years, really, to... Well, they, they can produce within decades, which is long enough, but they live for hundreds of years. And uh, they fell into rapid decline in the 20th century because they were so labour intensive and people were switching the land over to other other crops as well. Um, but there was this one type of peri pear that, that cider makers and peri makers used to talk about. It's almost like a, it was a, had mythical status, this copy. Uh, supposedly made the, the most delicious perry anyone had ever tasted. And this was passed down generation after generation, but everyone thought it had um, disappeared. Tom Oliver used to travel around the three counties looking and just seeing, you know, abandoned orchards, you know, around farms. Could he see a perry pear tree anywhere? And he did find lots of perry pear trees. One day he found what is believed to, to be, it was the last surviving copy tree. Um, and I was lucky enough to go and pick copy pears with him and make some perry with him and, and tasted it, which was absolutely delicious. And I'm sure even more delicious because of the um, the story of of the of the lost perry, which for Tom, um, he, you know, in the book, you know, I quote him saying, um, for anyone in the cider and perry world, that that tree was like, you know, it was like somebody finding, um, uh, you know, a, a, a an untouched tomb in, a, in an Egyptian pyramid, just mm. to reference that, that part of the world again. But it, it was that important um, to him. And so uh, it's a lost drink. I mean, you can still find Perry, uh, but to actually find really traditional Perry. I mean, we had Baby Sham in the 20th century, which came and went. And, uh, oh my God, that, that was my that, mom's <laughs> favourite drink when she was younger. <laughs> which, which did have its roots in the, you know, the Perry orchards of England, but, but became something different and then faded away. And that was, that was the, the, the one brave attempt to try and make it commercial, well, to try and make it a commercial drink. And it was one of the first drinks to be advertised on British television. But copy, um, the copy disappeared because the drink really disappeared and uh and obviously you can't recover those trees overnight so tom and a few others are replanting uh peri pear trees not for themselves but for their heirs so you say you you know you plant, plant yeah. pears for your heirs and i think um it will be their children or their children's children who really benefit from that well again i got the pleasure of tasting a little bit when you gave it to mm. me i actually really liked it. it it sort of reminded me of a cross between cider mixed with that sort of kombucha flavor um but it was refreshing and i liked mm. it and i like that sort of quite tart uh slightly acidic uh, mm. flavor I that, do like that, that one was that was um yeah that one was particularly um acidic uh 
and I think, but you can find Perry's and I think <laughs> Tom, um, the, the, this is a, a barrel aged wild fermented drink. So anything can happen once it's inside the barrel. Mm. Um, but there are some extremely delicate, exquisite Perry's that are, yeah, it just makes me think of crystals or, or you know, glass and diamonds, this kind of really smooth, pure flavor that you can get with some Perry's. Um, so again, it's, it's, and this is what I think we could all be doing is to select a favorite food or drink and then just explore it in all its diversity, whether it's a cheese or a bar of types of chocolate or whatever that, you know, get beyond the, what is, what is the price of something or is it good for me or all the other things that we would assess a food on delve into the diversity of a food or a drink and really explore it in, in all its different guises. Would you say that's one of the key points that you want people to take from the book? Yeah, I mean, clearly there is a lot that I'm exploring in the book, which is what feels or seems completely out of our control. And there are some big global and powerful forces that decide what's grown and what's eaten around the world. Um, however, that, you know, I think with all kinds of change, it can start at the grassroots. And, and mm -hmm. um, you and I are talking uh, in September. It's um, Apple apple season and uh just around the corner is something called apple day uh where Ooh. people in in communities ac across england and elsewhere celebrate apple diversity um it's it, there are ways in which we can get involved uh and celebrate and and protect and save diversity as well do you act as you as you write do you are you quite mindful as, a, as an eater um I, I wouldn't claim to be, um, to, you know, it's not as if I only eat foods from the Ark of Taste, you know, catalogue of rare foods, for example. Um, I, you know, I, I, I eat uh, a very wide range of foods. And when I'm, you know, traveling, recording programs, you know, I have to eat all kinds of food as well. Um, I, but I, yeah, I, but I am mindful in terms of what I'm eating. Um, in asking that question of what's the story behind what I'm eating, mm. you know, for good and bad, at least to, to be curious about what I'm eating. And also I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested when somebody is trying to do, pull something off that's really difficult. So to, to, to reclaim a, a variety of wheat that once grew in Wales or Scotland or, um, and that's happening. And so that really impresses me because I know what they're up against and I know the, the history of what's gone before. Back to your personal relationship with food. What is what are your specialities at home? Do you like cooking? I, I do. I'm one of those um, set piece kind of you know leave the kitchen in complete devastation type of cooks <laughs> <laughs> because I you know I go I go all out and 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 I'm and I'm also quite an instinctive cook. I might start with a recipe, but I you know I ended up I end up I can't resist you know, tweaking it or thinking, well, maybe that would work. And I think, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't claim to be a brilliant cook, but I think it, I'd pull it off most of the time. Um, and then for things that really have uh, meaning to me, um, I try and I've tried to replicate at home. So I mentioned the arancini and the panelli from Sicily. And I, those are foods that I've tried to, um, to produce you know to, to make myself so uh, yeah those, those are they're treats because they're quite, they're quite long processes mm -hmm. to, to get right and uh so uh yeah that that's and how uh, and how was your panelli 
Uh, never as good as the panelli I taste in Sicily. Mm. But then I, get, I could say that of the tomatoes as well. You know, it's, there's just something about what is yeah. grown and made there that does, you cannot replicate. Absolutely. It's all, for me, it's always about the produce. So mm. what would be like a normal day in food for you? Like your average day, what are we starting with? In fact, I didn't ask you at the beginning of this chat, what did you have for breakfast today? I always ask my guests what they have for breakfast. For breakfast uh, this morning, I had some cheese. Ooh. I was, re <laughs> I was really busy and a bit stressed uh, because I had a few other things going on this morning. And, and last night, I um, uh, had some, some cheese. And it was in the fridge, and I thought, I just really feel like uh, so it was some Roquefort Ooh, uh, and yes. some Gruyere uh, and some goat's cheese. Oh, so I just, I just got it, and I had that with a slice of pear and some. I, 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 in my garden, it's not a big garden, but uh, whoever was here before me uh, grew grapes. So I've got my own grapes, <laughs> and I combined that with the um, goat's cheese, and it was lovely. Yeah. Oh, that and that sounds lots, like my kind of breakfast. <laughs> and lots and lots of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, multiple double espressos. <laughs> mm. I just showed him my coffee cup. Yeah. When you're not at home, where do you like eating out? Where are some of your favourite restaurants? I live in Cheltenham. And uh, it's, it's not well known for its restaurant. It has one very, very well-known restaurant, Le Champignon Sauvage, which is amazing, but it's not a, an every, every week kind of restaurant what what we do have are some great pubs um mm. and so uh really um great uh yeah food and drink and that that's that uh, that i really enjoy because of the, the setting as well i i love i love pubs um uh, you know particularly uh you know kind of older style pubs as well and then uh, on rare occasions i've been lucky enough to go um abroad and uh and and eat in some of the yeah some very interesting places. So I, I'm I'm lucky in that I've I've tasted the food of people like Dan Barber or Rene Redzepi and um, mm. uh, yeah and, and and Magnus Nielsen and I you know and again it's as much about the story and their and their intense obsessions about food that really make those dishes shine and and sparkle and uh, yeah. So I, I, I love that because I love, yeah, I just love people who are so dedicated to the task and the craft and the, and the skill of, and the experimentation of yes. what they do as well. Yes. Yeah. Which seamlessly brings me on to my quick fire questions that this I makes me always, nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I always ask my guests at the end of the episode. So this one's going to be an interesting answer, I think. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? I think that might go back to the Hadza story because while we were in between you know, hunting for honey or digging for tubers, um, they did a bit of porcupine hunting, which meant that they, they went in deep underground into a tunnel. Somebody climbed into a tunnel wow. to, to flush out some porcupines. And um, when they were dispatched and then... Uh, immediately put onto a fire we had some um uh porcupine liver wow. yeah freshly okay. cooked yeah was yeah. it nice in terms of the time and the place and watching the whole thing <laughs> unfold memorable <laughs> another very yeah. diplomatic yeah. answer i love it yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
What? Well, this is going to be another great answer, I hope. What has been your most memorable meal? If you could even pick one. Yeah, well, there is. Um, I in the in the book is the story of uh, a cheese called Mishavin, which is made in the Albanian Alps, so in the far north of the country. And I travelled there with um, an amazing Italian guy called Pier Paolo Ambrosi, um, who uh, when um, when the wall came down uh, and you know communism started to break down all over Europe. Uh, Albanians left uh, the dictatorship and arrived in Italy and Pier Paolo was sent by a, a charity to go and find out where they were coming from because nobody really knew what was what happened in Albania because it was a closed state, a very strict communist state. And uh, so I, I travelled to the Albanian Alps with Pier Paolo to find this cheese that had survived in the, um, in the Alps because the communist regime had told people that they could only make two types of cheese and this wasn't one of them but it had survived and we then went to um, a chef who was saving helping to save the cheese by selling it to his customers and we sat down in this um, restaurant in um, just north of Tirana and uh, I don't know it was just something about the atmosphere the people the story it was beautifully cooked food very simple cheeses and um, you know dishes made with um, you know, foraged um, ingredients that, that people had brought in from the nearby countryside and shepherds had brought their milk in. And, but it was, it was a delicious meal. And it, but for some reason, I and mean, it was just probably the most emotional meal I've ever had because of, of these, the people involved were all trying to save and recover this, this food culture that had been really undermined by, you know, communism first and this dictatorship. And then because of the turmoil and the, the um, you know, the chaos that, that followed. Um, and uh, that, and a chef had said to me that when diplomats are told that they're going to be posted in Albania, uh, they cry twice. You know, they, they cry first, the first time around because they've been, they've been told they're going to Albania, you know, and they think, what have I done wrong? <laughs> and then the, se the, se the second time they cry when they leave because they've fallen in love with the country and they realise the truth of it, which is it's a beautiful country, um, incredible history, people, um, huge amounts of diversity. So that for me is the meal that really sums that up. So I've been, I think I've been very, uh, yeah, I, it would have been too easy to talk about a meal with my Sicilian nonna, which I could have said. But that for me, in terms of the travel and the Absolutely. research for the book, that really stood out. And I did cry when I left. Yeah. I left. And Pier Paolo, unfortunately, though he was there, to read the chapter um, before the book was published, passed away um, oh. uh, six weeks ago. So, uh, you know, that, that story means a lot mm, to me. Mm, I can imagine. Slightly changing the, um, the topic somewhat. Sure. Mm -hmm. My favourite snack of all time is a packet of crisps. <laughs> I mm -hmm. can't believe I'm asking you this question. Um, what is your favourite flavour of crisps and why? Well, you know, as, as I said, I, I'm a child of the 70s, you know, I grew up and um yeah and i would say cheese and onion yeah okay yeah are we talking like a good like like, like a, just a good standard packet of walkers or are we talking like a little bit i thicker, prefer like I had, a kettle chip or somebody something? offered me one the other day and it was the crispiest crunchiest and it's one of these you know more 
bespoke brand. Okay. It was the crispiest, crunchiest crisp I've ever had. <laughs> and it wasn't oily or greasy or anything. Oh, and I thought, nice. this is, this is, this is, this is lovely. You know, okay. I anyway, I can, um, and as long as you don't eat too many of them, obviously, you know, it's, uh, uh, but yeah. I'm, so, I'm still yeah. learning. I'm still learning that one. Down. <laughs> I know. Um, we all have to try. Yeah. Um, mm. What food sums up happiness for you? I think for me, cannoli. So Good again, answer. those, uh, and for me, uh, it's it's happiness because it's so you know it's so delicious that crisp tube filled with that sweet ricotta, um, like you know that creamy inside mm. and you bite into um to think about and, and then it makes me happy to think about all the history behind it you know the, the kind of influence of the arabs but also you know all kinds of, yeah, the, it's the beauty of sicily of all these different cultures um leaving their mark and i think partly you know that's what you get with cannoli um and it's just yeah it's just a beautiful you know sweet treat with history that reminds me of family uh and sunny days um of of walking down the piazza arm in arm with you know friends and family uh thinking about nothing more than food and good company oh how fabulous that was i sort of was picturing myself there mm. as you were talking <laughs> final answer mm. live to eat or eat to live mm, good question um I, and i can't say both you're not allowed to. Sorry, you cannot um, be diplomatic now. <laughs> well, I I think um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting in the context of the book uh, mm. because eat to live, um, in that that's that's the thing we had to fix. You know, from from day one in whatever you know, however far back you go in the history of us as a species, we've always had to find a way of feeding ourselves and that's the story i've tried to tell in the book so Absolutely. eating to live yeah. I, th I think that's the first time i've asked that question and it's it actually comes across in a completely different way to any other guest that i would ask <laughs> simply because actually what you're talking about is very very important and um it's something that we all need to uh kind of get on board with and start educating ourselves Dan, it's been no, it's been a real pleasure. The biggest Thank pleasure you. having you on. Um, I want to end mm. with a quote that I really like from your book that says, "There's two very simple sentences that I underlined. May I say this is the first book that I've gone through and underlined since I did my A levels. <laughs> so take that as a compliment. The first one is." Food shows us where real power lies. Mm. And the Very second, mm. about a sentence later, says, food stories are perhaps the most essential stories of all. Mm. And yeah. I'm going to leave it with that. Because this mm. is what you and I are all about. So thank you very Th much. Thank you so much, Hannah. If you do not follow Dan on social media, you must. He, you can find him on Instagram at dan.saladino. And please, please go and purchase this book, Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Until next time. Mm. Bye. It's been a real pleasure.
Thank you, Hannah. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time, bye.